You're listening to an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit our website at harvestgranger.org. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. How many of you feel like this world could use a few more people in the population that tell the truth? Do, do, do you appreciate people you can trust? I mean, just people you trust. They're honest people. You feel like we, we could use a few more of those types of people in the world, right? Um, let me ask you this. How many of you feel like uh, the world could use a few more people that are not angry all the time? Does it seem like people are just angry at one another? Yeah, I think so. Um, how many people feel like there could be a few more people in the population that aren't vulgar and filthy with their language? Like, man, if we could, if we could just kind of get rid of some of that, that would be awesome. Um, how about this? Um, how many of you feel like we could use a few more people in the world that don't take stuff that doesn't belong to them? And, and were generous. They saw a need and they just met the need. Use a few more people like that in the world? Yeah. Uh, one more thing. How many of you would appreciate it if there were more people in the world that were more forgiving when you messed up? Yeah. Okay. Well, we're going to go to work on that tonight. What my job is, and I believe what the Lord wants to do here tonight, is to actually increase the percentage of the population that actually do those five things. Now, we've been learning in the book of Ephesians that the first half of that book was all about the indicatives, things that are simply true of believers. Because you've come to Christ, because you trust Him, you follow Him, there are some things that are true about you. You are chosen, you're adopted, you're holy, you're sealed, you've got an inheritance. But because all that is true, there are some things that you have to now do. And so we're getting to the part of Ephesians that is very much heavy on the imperatives, all right? The verses we're about to look at are some of the most practical verses in the New Testament. And these five things we're about to look at are the distinctive marks of a Christian. And the reason why we wish there were more people that told the truth and weren't so vulgar and would be more forgiving is because we need more Christians in the world, okay? Now, what we're about to look at, if, as we go through these five things, if you would say, you know what, I don't see any of these five things characteristic of my life at all, your biggest problem is not that you're not doing these things, it's that you're not a Christian, okay? You, you are not doing these things... You don't have distinctive marks of a Christian because you just simply aren't a Christian, okay? So tonight would be a great night to get that taken care of so that these five things would become evident in your life, okay? Now, how many of you loved school? All, you know, I see no men in the room raising their hand at this point. There are a few ladies like, yeah, you know, I got A's and that was awesome and all the friends are there, great. Um, there, there were a few of you that did school well. Um, I would say that probably the majority of us, we, school was not our favorite thing. Um, recess was cool. Lunch, yeah, football. But, you know, beyond that, school work was, was not a big thing. So what we're going to do right now, if you remember last week, we saw in Ephesians 4, way back up in verse 20, he says, you did not learn Christ. You, it, what does it say? Let me read it instead of trying to quote it inappropriately. Verse 20 says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. And then verse 21 says, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him 
as the truth is in Jesus. So it's all about learning and hearing and being taught here tonight. I have already asked the Lord Jesus to be our teacher here tonight. I am not your teacher. Turn to your neighbor and say, Trent is not my teacher. Uh, the Lord is going to be our teacher here tonight, and he is going to take us to school. I, I knew I'd hear a groan when I said that, because some of you were like, man, I'm so glad I don't have to go to school anymore. Well, tonight we are going to school and Christ is going to be our teacher. There are five things that we are going to learn from Christ. Are you ready? Here we go. And it's brutal. Let me just warn you, it's brutal. There's going to be conviction here tonight. By the way, did you appreciate that list of 78 sins last week? Wasn't that a joy to work through, right? Everybody come back a little cleaner than you were last week, a little lighter. Did you put some things off and put some things on? Well, actually, in the context, he points to only five things. You say, I wish you'd only given us five. You gave us 78. Well, that was kind of comprehensive. Tonight, he drills down onto just five things. And here is the first thing. And all you have to do tonight... First of all, is go to elementary school, okay? Elementary school, and here's what we're going to learn in elementary school. We're going to learn how to tell the truth. That's what you need to learn in elementary school. So we're going to put off falsehood, and we're going to put on honesty. Let's see that beginning in verse 25 of Ephesians chapter 4. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So we need to learn how to tell the truth. Now, it's not just, it, we think of it as an elementary level, just like, don't lie. But there's so much more to being honest than just simply not telling lies. Now, if you're a liar, that's not good for you. The Bible says liars go to hell. You don't want to go to hell. You don't need to be a liar, okay? But it's not just about telling lies. It's about living a life of deception. And when he talks about telling the truth or speaking the truth, what he is saying is you need to live in reality and stop building a world of fantasy or falsehood. The Lord Jesus said, I am what? The truth. Truth is not just something Jesus did. Truth is something Jesus was. And if you're following Jesus, do you know what that means? Jesus is not going to let you live in fantasy land. Jesus is the one who defines reality for us. And so no matter what we think might be true of this world, no matter what lies that we are told, when, G when we have a relationship with Jesus, He is the one that defines reality, and it makes us allergic to lies as Christians. And so it makes us, it makes us truth detectors, and it makes, us, it, it makes it impossible for us to deceive without learning from Christ, that is not reality. That is fantasy. And so we're going to learn how to tell the truth. Over in uh, 1 John, we're kind of told about a progression. It's almost a trilogy of falsehood. And if we don't learn from Christ, the first thing that we're going to do is we are going to learn to lie to others. 
I, I got to thinking as I was working through this, why does a person lie? There's several reasons. One of the reasons a person lies is because he knows he has sinned. He knows he has done something wrong, but he doesn't want to receive the consequences of his wrongdoing. Does anybody think of a child in your home right now? He has done something wrong, but he doesn't want you to find out about it. So what does he do? He covers it so that he will escape the consequences of our sin, of his sin. But as we grow up, we do the same thing. And so we learn to lie to try to cover up wrong behavior. Another reason we lie is because we want somebody to think more highly of us than is actually true. We want to present an image of ourselves that is not real. Another reason we lie is because we want to kind of control power. We want to, we want to create a narrative about something that is not reality. And so in order to do that, over in 1 John chapter 1, he tells us the first thing that we do is we learn to lie to others. This verse says it this way. If we say we have fellowship with him, fellowship means friendship. It means we are close. We are, we, we are constantly in communication with one another. We are tight. If we say we are tight with him and we walk in darkness, what's the reason? We lie and we do not practice the truth. So the first step in putting off falsehood and putting on honesty is to be honest with others, not presenting an image of ourselves that is better than we know the reality really is. It's becoming transparent. It's becoming vulnerable. It's letting people see the weakness in you and asking them to help you in the journey. Don't pretend that you are tight with God when you are walking in darkness far from the truth. And that's so easy to do in a church, right? Because we want people to think highly of us and respected of us. And we try to smash that every time we come in here. We try to hump, get to the place of humility. And, and I've got a little mnemonic device to help you with that every now and then. I'll just remind us all that, you know, the reality is we've, we've really got some residual sin in us. And in reality, we're nothing but a dirty, rotten sinner. Yeah, you've learned that lesson, haven't you? Now, now listen, outside of Christ, that is true. We have a new identity in Christ. That's exactly what we went through in the first part of Ephesians. But we've got to keep coming back to the fact that the remaining residual sin is not yet dealt with. And if I get honest with a brother and say, would you pray for me? I've really struggled this week with, with my relationship with my wife, or I'm really struggling with how to handle my money, or, or I've really messed up in a, in a sexual arena. Would you, would you come along side of me and help me out of that, that is putting off falsehood and putting on honesty. So to be honest with one another, but if you want to present an image of yourself that is better than reality, you know what you're going to do? You're going to lie and not practice the truth. Now, that's 1 John 1, 6. Two verses later, he tells us there's another level of lying that we'll get to. And that's not only lying to others, but we eventually begin to lie to ourselves. 1 John 1.8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive who? We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Do you know what happens to a person that learns to lie? He eventually begins 
to believe his own lies. He begins to deceive himself. And he says, sin? I have no sin. He goes through that put on, put off list that I handed out last week. He's like, man, I, I guess I'll just pray for other people that I know that have these problems, right? Because you've lied so long about the fantasy world and you haven't lived in reality, you eventually begin to believe your own lies. We, we taught our children early, early, early that the worst sin of all is lying. Because if you learn to, if you learn to be a good liar, there's no other sin that you won't try because you think the consequences won't catch up with you because you've become good at covering your sin. And so we lie to others. Secondly, we lie to ourselves. That's 1 John 1, 8. Two verses later, do you know what it says? There's a third piece of this trilogy. Not only will we lie to others, not only will we lie to ourselves, he says we will learn to call God a liar. 1 John 1.10 says, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. Do you see how critical it is for you as a follower of Christ to learn at the very foundational level to live in the land of the truth. No pretense, just honesty, transparency, vulnerability, not only honest with others, not only honest with yourselves, but honest before God. It's so foundational. Telling the truth as a Christian is like learning the ABCs for a first grader. Because if you don't learn the truth, nothing else is going to work right in your life. So are you a truth teller? That's the first thing that we need to learn. We learn to tell the truth. We got to put off falsehood, put on honesty. Here's the second thing. Now, now we get to middle school. Aren't you glad? Wasn't middle school a wonderful experience for you? Right? Middle school is this. Middle school, you have to learn how to handle anger. So you have to put off anger and put on trust. In a moment, I'll tell you the relationship between anger and trust, but I want you to see it here in Scripture. Look at verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, this is a familiar verse, but so often we're so quick to read into what we think it means, we miss what it actually is. And if you're not careful, you'll think it means the exact opposite of what it means. First of all, before we say anything else, look at the verse. It is a command. It is an imperative to be, what? Angry. How many of you obeyed that verse this week? <laughs> Wait a minute. I just read a verse that commanded me to be angry. Is that what it says? That's exactly what it says. Be angry and do not sin. Apparently in this verse, anger 
and sin are two different things. Apparently, it is possible for me, even commanded of me, to get angry sometimes. But to be angry without sinning. It's like, how do you do that? Well, let's find out. Because remember, the verse is a command. Now listen, if you are a person who never gets angry, you've got a worse problem than the guy that always blows his top. Because if you can look at the injustice and the brokenness and the pain and the heartache in this world and not get angry about it, you've become calloused. You've lost your sensory perception to things that God gets angry at. God gets angry. Did you know that? Have you ever read the Old Testament? God gets a little ticked off sometimes. Now listen, God gets angry but never sins. How about you? How does God get angry without sinning? Well, what you have to understand about anger is um, anger always serves one of two purposes. First of all, anger is used to protest what is evil. Secondly, anger is used to protect what is good. I, I learned this from my good friend Tim Downs, and, and just, it just really opened up the world to me when I understood, you know what? I need to be more angry I need to protest more over what in this world is evil, and I need to be angry to the point where I would protect what is good in this world. Do you know what our problem is in our fallen humanity? Too often we get angry because we are protesting what is good and protecting what is evil. So when he says be angry, it is a command that you lay aside your Lay aside your indifference. Let your blood boil over things that are evil in this world. We are to protest that so that we can protect what is good. So if you're an indifferent person, you need to obey the first two words of verse 26. It's time for you to be angry. But for most of us, we sin when we get angry. So let's talk about that. Anger is, is a mechanism that the Lord has put into us. It's a tool. It's a warning light. How many of you right now, when you go out to the parking lot and start your car, the engine light's going to come on? How many of you right now, the engine light is, in your car, is on in your car, right? How many of you, it's been on for like several years, okay? Is, is that you? I mean, you just, and, and you kind of justify it in your mind. I'm sure there's just a problem with the bulb or something, you know. It's probably like, there's this a loose connection or something. No! Anger is like the warning light on the dashboard in your car. It is trying to alert you that something is going wrong. And it needs to be made right. Now, how you handle that information is either going to lead you to change what is wrong, or get angry about what is wrong. And so we need to understand this is a warning light. You sense anger stirring up in your soul. It's time for, to move you into action. In the Old Testament, in Genesis chapter 4, we are four chapters into the Bible, and we read a story about two brothers. 
These brothers brought different offerings to the Lord. Cain and Abel. Abel's offering was accepted by the Lord. Cain's offering was rejected by the Lord, and it made him mad. And the Lord shows up and has a conversation with Cain. And you know what he asked him? He asked him a question. Cain, why are you so angry? Now, how many of you know that when God asks questions, it's not because he doesn't already know the answer, okay? You think God already knew the answer why he was angry? Why does the Lord ask us questions? So that you'll figure it out. And so it is a good question to ask when you see the warning light on, when you feel the anger bubbling up in your heart, to ask yourself this question, why am I so angry? So God asked Cain that question. And before Cain gives the answer, God gives him a warning. He says, what's going on inside of you is not good. And what you are about to do is going to determine the outcome of your life. Actually, what he said was this. He said, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. So he gives this word picture of like this ferocious animal. I mean, just you can see just the, the teeth and, and, and the slobber coming out of his mouth. He's, he's a raging animal crouching at the door waiting to attack. That's what God said to Cain after he asked the question, why are you angry? Do you understand when you're angry, what you do next will determine whether or not you live or die spiritually? He says, sin is crouching at your door. And then he said this, but you must master it. You must rule over it. Do you get the picture? What you do with anger, how you respond to anger is either going to be something you master or it's going to master you. You will either live in control of your anger choosing when to use it, when to deploy it, where it goes, so that you don't sin when you're angry. Or, like, like an animal that's about to pounce, pounce on you, it is going to control you, and you're going to lose all control and be out of control. This is, an, this is especially a problem for men. There are a lot of negative emotions, sadness, fear, anxiety, and all of those are emotions that when someone is experiencing them, it draws you to them, doesn't it? Makes you want to put your arm around them. It's like, it's, we're going to walk through this together. It's going to be okay. How can I pray for you? But men seem to translate every emotion into the one masculine emotion. What is that? Anger. We fly off the can't handle. We start cussing, kick the cat, push a hole in the wall. And somehow we think that's manly. It is good for men, when they start asking that, to ask the question that God asked Cain. Why am I angry? And to realize my anger is probably something going on below the surface. I'm sad. I'm hurt. I feel disrespected. I'm anxious. And do you know what happens when a man gets honest about actually what is going on below the surface? It draws those closest to you, closer to you. They want to come around. They want to surround you. For a man to pull his family together and say, I, just some things happened today. I just made me really sad. 
I'm really anxious about what's going on. And that invites a response of compassion. But what happens when a man flies into a rage? It repels. And he does great damage to his relationships. Middle school. We've got to learn how to handle our anger. So we've got to put off anger and put on trust. You know how we said earlier that um, uh, anger is deployed one of two ways? To protest what is evil and to protect what is good. Here's the problem. I can't control what is always going on around me, evil and good. And I need to understand I have a limited ability to change my environment. But God has unlimited capability to change the situation. And he, more than I, am committed to protecting what is good and protesting what is evil. And I can trust him. I can let go of my anger. I can embrace and trust God to take care of things that are out of my control. That's middle school. That's how to handle anger. Let's go to high school. Is that a great experience for you? High school. High school, we're going to learn how to handle possessions. And so we need to put off stealing and put on sharing. Look at it here in verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So why does a thief steal? Well, apparently he's got two basic problems. And in this verse... God provides the two solutions to the problem. His first problem is he's lazy. That's why he is given the solution that he needs to work with his hands. He needs to learn to produce on his own. And so uh, he's lazy. There's the solution. Let him work with his hands. His second problem is he's greedy. He wants something that someone else worked to obtain. And he believes that somehow, if he could just have that in his possession, it would increase his security and his satisfaction. Now, a believer knows that's not true. Because no matter how much you get, you always want what somebody else has. And so a believer puts off stealing and disciplines himself to be content with what he has and then to look for needs around him and to meet those needs by sharing. Now, how does a person steal? Now, I, I guarantee you, most of you right now are like, can we please go on to the next one? I am not a thief. I am not a crook. Now, now be careful. Now, listen, if you are a crook and you are a thief, you need to repent, okay? If you're in the habit of, of shoplifting, if you're in the habit of robbing a bank, bad, wrong, not going to end up in a good place. If you currently, let me try this. If you currently have in your possession, in your wallet, on your body, in your closet, in your car, or in your garage, something that is actually somebody else's property, you're a thief. Take it back. And if it's mine, I'll show you bring it to the church, uh, you drop it off. And listen, seriously, sometimes we take stuff and we don't even think anything about it, all right? 
So if you just go through the inventory of your house, did you purchase everything that is in your house right now or did you take that from somebody else? It's like, it's, it's, now listen, that, that's probably pretty surface. Let's go to a deeper level. Because if you're an employee, you rob your employer by not giving him an honest day's work. He's paying you and you're not giving him the work associated with that pay. If you're an employer and you have employees that are working and you're not paying them a fair wage, you are stealing from them and you need to pay them a fair wage. There are other ways that we apply this. We steal from people when we do not provide services or products that were promised. We steal from people when, uh, when, when they supply the products or the services and we don't pay them. Have you paid all of your bills? You paid all of your taxes? We steal from people when we fail to pay someone that we owe. Christians ought to be the best employees, the best workers, the best customers, and the best contractors because we've been changed by the power of the gospel. We steal from a person when we don't give him the honor or the credit that's due him. Some of us steal from people by cutting and pasting. Some people call that homework or research. God calls it plagiarism. God calls it stealing. And so we've got to be careful about that. We steal from our spouse when we don't provide love or physical intimacy because that belongs to them. And we, most importantly, listen, it's, it's bad to steal from somebody else. That is bad. Don't do that. But listen, it's just stupid to steal from God. And if somehow you still haven't developed a habit of taking out what God gives to you and giving back to Him a percentage of your income, the, God says, you are robbing me. And you say, how are we robbing you? With your tithes and offerings. That needs to be a part of your discipline. And so we learn to meet needs. We put on sharing. We put on a heart of generosity. Let's go to college. When are you going to learn? We're going to learn how to use our words in college. Uh, we're going to put off tearing down and we are going to put on building up. Look at verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth but only such is as good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And so this deals with the whole issue of profanity and having a potty mouth, of course. There are just some words that are out of bounds for Christians, and so often we come up with other words that kind of mean the same thing, but they kind of remind us of the other words. And, and we need to let no corrupting talk. Really, there are words that corrupt another person. That means it poisons them. It does damage to them. It corrodes them. And so there are certain words that are never to be spoken. We'll understand that when we understand the power of our words. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Did you hear what that said? You have power because you have words. And you can use the power either to kill or produce life and growth in another person. Christians ought to know this better than anybody because God takes words very seriously. Jesus himself is referred to in John 1.1 as the word. He was the living word. 
And we, we love God because He has spoken to us through His Word. Now we use words, or we should use words, to build up rather than to tear down. Is that the way you use words? Notice it says we should only speak words that are useful for building up. It fits the occasion that it may give grace. Do you understand? Words are the delivery system of grace. You are a channel. And God wants to get some grace from His heart through you to another person. I want to give you a challenge, okay? You ready for a 30-day challenge? Here it is. For the next 30 days, I want you to resist the temptation to speak a negative word about anyone in your family don't just resist the temptation to speak a word that's negative to them, but resist the temptation to speak a negative word about them. You know, we emphasize small groups around here in our church. Wonderful ministry. It's so much a part of what we do. It's got you need to be in a small group. If you're not in one, we'll get you signed up. But listen, small group time, when we, when we regroup, what we do typically is, is men and women are together in the same group, and then halfway through we regroup, men go with men, ladies go with ladies. So often that turns into an opportunity to let everybody in our group know the poor performance of our spouse in the other room. Can I ask you to resist the temptation to speak a negative word about your spouse, your children, your parents for the next 30 days, and then every day for the next 30 days, Go to every other person in your family, look them in the eye, and use your words to deliver some grace. Something like, really creative here, I love you. That's that, going to work really well on Tuesday if you use that, okay? Or, I forgive you. Or I believe in you. I'm so proud of you. Do you appreciate it when somebody delivers words like that to you? How many of you believe there ought to be more people in the, word that deliver, in the world that should deliver some grace? Why don't you be one of them? Sign up. Be one of the people that becomes a person who encourages and builds up. Here's the last place we're going to go. We're going to go to grad school. And in grad school, this is the toughest one. Uh, we got to learn to deal with hurt. Put off revenge and put on forgiveness. Verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander. Did we leave anything else off? Yeah, one more. But be put away, along with all malice, that, that should cover all the bases. Let all of that be put away and replace it with this. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God has forgiven you. Do you see the word bitterness in verse 31? Do you see the word forgiving in verse 32? Those are juxtaposed. Bitterness is harboring hurt. Bitterness is allowing someone to offend you and not immediately, fully, and freely forgiving them. Forgiveness involves canceling the penalty that rightly should be given to this person who hurt you. Not only canceling the penalty, but it's 
paying the price to restore the relationship. Bitterness is releasing a person from the obligation that incurred when they damaged you. And it's just saying, um, I'm going to love you as if you never hurt me. Now, I know I'm talking to some people that have been deeply, deeply hurt. Some of you have been slandered. Some of you have been cheated. Some of you have had words spoken to you that were damaging. Some of you live with an angry person. Some of you have been lied to. Do you know what we just talked about? The other four things that we talked about? That's what you have to forgive. Because people are broken. And people are going to hurt you. The question is not, have you been hurt? The question is, have you gotten hard? And become bitter? Forgiveness is the only remedy for hurt. It's the only thing God gives us to deal with hurt. You say, Trent, you do not know what they did to me. You're right, I don't. But I do know what you, by your sin, did to the Son of God. Your sin punched holes through His wrists. Your sin bled His blood out of His body. That's what you did. And from the cross, Christ says, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. And so how can you now, as a forgiven sinner, withhold forgiveness from somebody that sinned against you? I don't know what they did to you, but it wasn't near what you did to Christ. As a forgiven person, you now bend the forgiveness horizontal and you extend forgiveness freely. Listen, there are no enduring relationships without many acts of minor forgiveness, almost on a daily basis, forgiveness has to be extended in a home or that home's going to break apart. And listen, there are no enduring relationships without several acts of major forgiveness because of the major damage that's been done to you. There are not scales of forgiveness. We forgive minor offenses. We forgive major offenses. And we do it because we are ones who have known the forgiveness of God. So we need to put off revenge and put on forgiveness. You say, Trent, I just can't let them off the hook. Do you? I mean, they owe me. They slander me. What they did was a crime. Listen, I'm not telling you to take them off the hook. I'm just saying you need to get them off of your hook. Because God says they're still on my hook. He's a God of justice. And every sin will be dealt with either on the cross in Christ or one day in hell. God says, you need to forgive. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. You need to fully and freely forgive. So, um, how, did you get out of grad school? You say, man, I didn't even make it out of elementary school. Now listen, the thing about school is there's always tests, Right? And everything we just learned from Christ will be tested this week. Don't you love tests? You're going to be tested. Somebody's going to hurt you and you're going to be tested whether or not you're going to forgive. You're going to be tested. Anger's going to boil up and you're going to say, what am I going to do with this? What am I going to do? 
You're going to be tested about the words that come out of your mouth. Am I going to build up? Am I going to tear down? You're going to get tested. Why don't we bow our heads here in prayer? Ask God to give us grace to pass the test. Would you just identify those things that you need the Lord's help with? Do you need to learn how to live by telling the truth? Speak the truth. Put, off, put away falsehood. Speak the truth. You need to learn how to deal with your anger. Why don't you be honest with him? Say, Lord, it's been way too many times. My family, my employees, my employer has seen me fly off the handle. Maybe for you it's just kind of a slow simmer. Just kind of sits there and boils on the inside. Do you need the Lord's help in being generous? Not taking from somebody else that worked really hard for that? You need to learn how to use your words. Tearing down is no longer an option, just building up. Just ask the Lord to give you the grace. And probably for most of us, we need the Lord's help in dealing with bitterness, forgiveness. I'm going to pray right now. In just a moment, we're going to sing and ask the Lord in this next song to give us the help we need. Lord, tonight we acknowledge so many areas where we're still learning. Thank you that you're a gracious teacher. We've heard from you. We've been taught by you tonight. I want to pray for our church family that these distinguishing marks would set us apart. People would say, what's different about you? We just simply acknowledge we learn these things from Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Why don't we stand together? If you need to come to somebody for prayer, we've got pastors up here that would love to pray for you, but let's just acknowledge that we need the Lord's help in living this way.